will tonight to Matthew uh, uh, chapter 23. Uh, it's kind of an odd uh, way of bringing about a message, uh, but I was have been watching this week some of the some clips and some panels from the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans uh, this past week and some of the discussions there. And uh, in a general way, I'm, I was encouraged by a lot of what I heard. It seems as though uh, there is a, at least a trend uh, towards holding fast as a confessional people. Uh, it's interesting to me, but if you remember some of the history, um, you know, there was a conservative resurgence and that, that battle was really over the inerrancy of scripture. Um, and I've heard people say, well, you know, we won that battle. We, we, uh, I don't know that I would go so far as to say we won it, but we did, we did, we did seem to get the edge. Uh, but it seems to me like now the battle has shifted from the, from the inerrancy of Scripture to what the Scripture means. Uh, in other words, um, there are groups that are both claiming the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, but they're, but they're proposing that the Scriptures mean very different things and, and so we're, we're in kind of a strange place. And I told a friend of mine this week that I was encouraged by what I saw uh, as a trend. But if, if that's only a, a temporary trend, the trajectory uh, of where we've been moving is going to wind up the way of the Methodist church in many ways. And so I'm encouraged by the, the slight pause uh, in that trajectory. And my hope is that that becomes a trend and a trend backed to a more a solid foundation as a convention, but in, in watching those panels, I, it occurred to me, and I wondered if some of those men uh, who were in those exalted positions realized uh, the implications of some of the things they were asserting uh, and embracing perhaps as policy on the local church, the small church like us and like many in our community. And I was just thinking about how I would not want to be uh, in, in their shoes, um, making decisions that would be perhaps having impacts on local fellowships of believers um, without, without consulting or without knowing their circumstances and just what an awesome weightiness that would be. And my mind was drawn, I was reading in the gospel, but my mind was drawn to, I, not Isaiah, but Matthew chapter 23, uh, really the first uh, 12 verses there, and I just wanted to share some thoughts uh, from that tonight. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying to them, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, who is he who is in heaven. Do not it be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself 
shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Let me pray again. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, for the word itself, for the truth here. Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the understanding of this truth and that we might see the, the huge implications involved in this passage of Scripture among all of Scripture. And so, Father, help me in the communication of that. Help those who have gathered in the hearing of it as well. In the end, uh, we want to hear from you. So, Father, um, use, use me as an instrument for that, as you will, and open our hearts for the truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I studied this passage of Scripture, it was uh, increasingly interesting to me in the way that Jesus addresses this because he essentially points to this group of leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, and he, he, he seems to say that they have taken the chair of Moses, therefore on that basis do what they tell you and observe what they teach you. But then at the same time, he discredits those men by saying don't do what they do though because they say things and they don't do them. So there's a strange dynamic involved there because Jesus seems to be walking this fine line between supporting the institution and calling into question the character of those, those abiding in the office of the institution. And that, that's why this passage struck me because that's, that's what kept coming to my mind. I was, I was watching all these different panels and these discussions among uh, the elite in the Southern Baptist Convention, men, men of renown and men of accomplishment, men who are sort of riding the, the top tier of Southern Baptist life. And I, that's why I said I, I feel for them. I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying I feel for them because they, they're walking a fine line. And and when you're, when you're handing down edicts that way, you better, you better take care that you are living by those same edicts. And so there is a character issue involved here. So I just wanted to look at these passages and just think about a few of those things tonight and some observations. Number one, in regards to these men, they are, uh, and I'm thinking here in terms of these hypocrites because he goes on with eight woes that he pronounces upon these religious leaders. But among these, they are, they are present most often in the context of religion, these men. Verses 1 through 7, overall, you see that. And that's interesting because uh, the seat that he spends, mentions here later is in the synagogue. And so that's a context in which they might actually bind the behavior or restrict the conduct of men. That's a powerful place to be in that religious context. And more significantly, because of that religious context, it might also bind the conscience of those same men, given their, that man's recognition of their authority. So, so what's striking about this is the environment in which these men and their character are fulfilling some obligation. Uh, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough the power of a religious elite. It's one thing to have a cultural elite. You can disregard them. They can't really bind the conscience. But a religious elite, especially if he is acknowledged as authoritative by the adherence to that religion, has all sorts of capacity to bind the conscience of his hearers. And that makes it all the more dangerous and all the more manipulative potentially. 
often wondered how, how it is, and I, you see these different cults, and I, I remember particularly the Branch Davidians, and I remember film clips of David Koresh, and he had the whole congregation gathered with open Bibles, and he with an open Bible, and reading from the Scriptures, and, and we saw the outcome of that. Same with the Jim Jones and Jamestown Massacre and things like that. All, there's always a religious connotation to these cults that wind up causing the death sometimes of thousands, if not hundreds and if not tens. And I think the reason that they are so susceptible to that is because the adherence to that religion, they, they have their consciences bind, bound by those cult leaders because they are, are religious, because they are they are adhering to that religion and they are looking upon that person in that high place as authoritative. And, and when he says this is what we ought to do, they feel bound in their conscience as a matter of faith that they must do those things. I've even heard the secular world, one of the accusations they make against the legitimate Christian church is that we are so subject to being brainwashed and, and becoming like a cult just listening to our men in the pulpit in some way. So, so I'm saying that this is what Jesus is describing is in a religious context and that makes all the difference in the world. It should, it should come to bear on those occupying those seats, but it also should be recognized by those who are adherents to the religion that they are espousing. There is a huge responsibility for these men who are sitting in the seat of Moses. There's a huge responsibility of these believers who are adhering or listening to and holding in high esteem those in that place as well. So I just wanted to point out, especially as a matter of application, the context of this. And it is a religious context. In verse 2 you see as well, but they often occupy a place of recognized authority. The chair of Moses. In Exodus 18, 13 is really where this derived from. When Moses brought the children out, he sat down in their midst and he would judge the people. You remember his father-in-law tells Moses, this is going to wear you out. And so he, he, he proposes the plan that he would appoint people under him and they would judge among tens and fifties and hundreds and they would judge the small items. And if it elevated to something too difficult, they would bring it to Moses. But this idea of Moses sitting among the people of Israel, bringing the law, reading the law, granting judgment, making judgments, uh, rendering justice according to the law of God. That's the ideal that was carried down through the history of Israel. And so when you had this chair of Moses, which was literally an adorned throne-like chair in the synagogue, then that religious leader took that position, took his seat, opened the scriptures, and declared the law. There was a recognized authority involved in that. So they didn't take lightly what he said when he sat in the chair of Moses. In fact, they took it as binding upon them. And to me, when I read that, I'm thinking, man, that is ripe. That is ripe for exploitation right there. That is ripe for abuse. A lot is depending upon the character of the man who occupies that particular seat. 
He is to be seated there and to render judgment from the chair of Moses. In fact, I think in some ways he was esteemed to almost to be a very similar in authority to Moses himself. Not so much because of the man, but because of what that seat represented. And Jesus says here, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. It's interesting to note that he points out here they have seated themselves. Well, well technically speaking, through the traditions and, and through uh, the Levitical priesthood, they, they were more broadly appointed to that position, although individuals uh, within the Levitical priesthood who took that chair may have jockeyed for position, rose to that level of power, and jockeyed to seat themselves in that chair. So it just seems to suggest to me that Jesus is saying something about how they got there without condemning the fact that they were there or that there was such a thing as the chair of Moses, and obviously the synagogue. I wrote in my notes this, it is not as they were not seated as Moses was per se by a direct appointment from God. Rather, it was more generally by their descendancy from the tribe of Aaron, and more specifically by their courses and the traditions they had put in place to occupy the seat of Moses when they met in the synagogues. And so in each individual synagogue, there would be a similar situation and there would be a similar hierarchy of the priesthood or the Pharisees and the scribes who would take the seat of Moses and from there expound the law and render justice and, and decisions in regards to matters in the community or among the people of God. So it was a huge responsibility. So Jesus has says, says that. And then in verse 3, their authority there is not imagined, it's real. And this is what's striking to me about this passage because given what Jesus is about to say about the men occupying this, my thought would have been that he would say, they, those who were sitting in the chair of Moses have exploited it and he would condemn them and relieve the people of any obligation to yield to their authority. But he doesn't do that. And that's stunning. I mean, he says to these people in verse 3, Therefore, <clears throat> the, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And from that authoritative position, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Now, that's just stunning to me. Because I've read the rest of the passage. Now, if I didn't read the rest of the passage, I would say that apparently that is God's ordained instrument by which he was cultivating faithfulness in the people of Israel and had been for generations. As a part of Israel's tradition, it had been the instrument God had used to cultivate a faithful Israel. And it seems to me that Jesus is not about destroying that instrument. Especially since through that instrument and through the declaration of the law, the very revelation of Christ himself was being put forth when they would read the law. He isn't out to undermine the institution by which God was going to cultivate faith and the institution through which he would be revealed as foretold in the scriptures and in the law and in the prophets. So you see the line Jesus is walking here. 
He's not encouraging the people to abolish or to do away with the synagogue and the Moses chair and the reading of the law. He's not at this point encouraging them to dispense with that because it's become corrupt. In fact, he's saying the institution is ordained of God. Preserve the institution. And then he's going to go on to talk about those who are occupying that office. And that's just striking to me. And I think in application, it could be brought into the church today. Because of the uncharacter and un, or the unprincipled men that sometimes come to places of authority in the church, there have been those that I have met personally who have dispensed with the institution of the church altogether. And that's egregious. And that's, and that's partly consequential of the immorality and the, and the falling away of leadership in churches. But I think Jesus would say, don't dispense with the instrument of my sanctification or the instrument of my own glory because of the fallen men who occasionally come to those places. And I, I just couldn't help but see the application there. And in our convention, we're in this dilemma right now as to whether or not this, we're going to read the Scriptures as they are written and interpret them rightly and stand fast upon them confessionally as a people or whether we're going to modernize the language to accommodate a culture moving away from godliness. And so there are men in these places of authority and they may make bad decisions but we don't cast off the institution of the church because there are the occasional fallen men who are carried away by their own lust. And I think that's the balance Jesus is striking in this passage. Jesus is encouraging the Jews to disregard the synagogue or the reading of the law or the bringing to bear of the law in regards to community events and circumstances and individuals and sin in general, he's not at all encouraging or endorsing their dispensing of or disregarding of that particular institution. At least not at this point. But look what he does go on to say. Uh, by the way, uh, in verse 3 as well, not only is their authority real, and not imagined, but they may, ask, they may actually be teaching orthodoxy. Uh, in fact, he's, apparently he says that whatever they say and tell you and say uh, for you to do from that place of authority, from the scriptures, do that. And so that tells me that they're not sitting in the chair of Moses preaching heresy. They were apparently reading the law rightly, interpreting it rightly and making uh, demands in some ways in regards to the application of that law. And he says, what they tell you from that place of authority and from that scripture, you do and you observe. Don't dispense with that. Don't dispense with truth. How sad is it that so many people have dispensed now with biblical truth because of the character and the lack of integrity of those who are leading in those as well. It's, it's tragic and it's heartbreaking because they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater, as the saying goes. They've thrown out the truth because those who, who even occasionally speak the truth are not, not flawless themselves, and they take that to the extreme. So these men apparently were at least capable of preaching or teaching right things. I had this in my notes. The place, the place that they occupied 
and their function in the religious instruction of Israel was not to be despised or disregarded by the Jews. It was, in fact, the very instrument, as I've already said, that, that was appointed by God to cultivate their faithfulness and through which the Christ himself would being, was being revealed publicly by the reading of the law and the prophets. However, while establishing the authenticity of the office, Jesus does call into question the character of the men occupying that office. What follows then in these verses is a rebuke of those men and I think also a warning uh, regarding those, those who were hearing him here. He said this to his disciples uh, particularly. So they may exalt themselves to this sort of place as well. So there's a warning to them and a rebuke of those men who were occupying those places. In fact, in later in this chapter, beginning in verse 13 and beyond, uh, Jesus pronounced severely uh, eight different woes upon these religious leaders that he's about to scrutinize. So let's look at what the problem was with these men. We know they were in a rightful place they were occupying rightly the chair of Moses. They were apparently speaking the truth from the law when they occupied that chair. And what they, what they uh, laid upon the people to do uh, from that chair was reasonable and right uh, according to the law. And they were to observe and to do that. However, of these men, it says in verse 3, But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Uh, there's some italics there, but literally the literal reading of that last phrase is, do not according to their deeds, for they say and do not do. The things is in italics in the New American Standard. So, so the literal rendering of a, that is said, the problem with the men occupying this place to which I want you to esteem highly is that they say and they don't do. We just read the book of James. That's exactly what James is saying. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. These men say and don't do. They impose upon others a standard by which they themselves will not live. They give them the law and hold them responsible to live by it while they in the main disregard it in their own personal lives. They say and they do not do. So there's a problem with the character of the man occupying the office. And you say, well, I'm not going to listen to a man like that. Jesus just got through saying, don't dispense with the office. Don't disregard the authority of the word of God proclaimed from the chair of Moses under the authority of God as the instrument of God's cultivating faithfulness in your life. Don't throw that away. Just recognize that there are men who occupy that office who are laying things upon you, standards from that law that they themselves will not do. And that's a condemnation of the man, not the office. There's a big difference. They say and they don't do. Let me just say, how often are we guilty of that? And particularly us who stand in places like this and we forcefully preach the word and we go out and maybe we have good intentions of keeping that word, but we find that during the week that we struggled to keep that very word. And sometimes I think about, did I lay a burden on the people of Diamond Hill that I'm not even inclined to bear? Am I a sayer and not a doer? That's a, that's a character issue for the people who abide in these offices. 
Uh, I need to be, and if you're in an office of leadership, whether that be as an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or even a father in a home or a mother over her children, are you a doer, a sayer and a doer, or are you just a sayer? My dad uh, had the famous saying, and, uh, and some of you may have heard this, but dad used to tell me literally, do as I say, not as I do. And he was exercising authority, but he was relieving himself of the expectation in his son that he would do the thing that he asked his son to do. And guess what the result of that was? I didn't do what he said. Eventually, I stopped doing what he said because he didn't do the thing he said, so we obviously don't think it's that critical for the thing to be done. Therefore, I conclude that I won't even do the thing at all. You see how that can set us up. These the character flaw in the men occupying this office that Jesus is trying to preserve is that they are doers, sayers, and not doers. In verse 4, another condemnation that he gives here is that they tie up heavy burdens. I thought about the phrasing there, they tie up burdens. I, I don't think they meant, Jesus meant literally they load up their their. Uh, barley in a sack and make you carry it. I think he's speaking metaphorically here and, and the idea of tying up uh, gives me the idea of they package together a, a bunch of stuff and they lay it on your shoulders and you walk off bending under the burden and they won't extend the slightest mercy to relieve the burden in any sense whatsoever. I think that's part of the saying and the not doing. It's clear if you do much research that the, the religious leaders had basically amassed a library, a library of regulations and standards and traditions all designed around the proposed idea to to corral you in from being a lawbreaker. You've heard me use the extreme example in regards to guarding the Sabbath that you weren't allowed to spit upon the ground on the Sabbath day lest you till the soil with the, with the saliva from your mouth. They had all sorts of regulations. And see, the reason that that's so heavy it's because when you lay them down under the guise of the authority that is recognized in you in the seat of Moses, then they take that as law. Now it's unlawful to spit upon the ground. It's unlawful to, to, to get your ox out of the ditch. It's unlawful. All these traditions that they had instituted out of their own desires and their own overzealousness perhaps to guard the people against sinning against the law, they, they, they applied as though they were law. Jesus says, says of them that they make the law devoid by their traditions. That's the, they tie all this stuff together and they sew it up into a neat little compact bundle that weighs a ton and they lay it upon the shoulders of these faithful believers in God and they go through their life defeated by the weightiness of all the things they had added. That really struck me because I thought to myself, if I read the law alone, I don't need 600 commands or traditions or regulations set down by the Pharisees. I'm already under enough burden just looking at the law. I mean, just one commandment. 
Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt honor thy mother and thy father. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Just take one of those and lay it on your shoulders and to resolve yourself to abide not only in action but in spirit by that command. And that's heavy enough. But the Pharisees were like, the men occupying this authoritative position were like, that's not enough. Let's, let's hedge the people in with some regulations and let's heap it all on their shoulders. And there is no joy in that sort of oppression. These men were that kind of men. And I think it makes it worse that not only did they tie all this stuff up and throw it onto the shoulders, but whenever they recognized that the, the, the oppression of it and the, and, the, and the despair that it was causing, they, they, they dared not relieve it one iota or offer the least bit of mercy or to take their own finger and carry the burden with them. They do, they say, but they don't do. They say, and they did. <laughs> they said from the chair, and the folks who heard did. They carried the burden. That's how this religious elite was operating. They tied up these heavy burdens. Think about this. The force of law, the binding the consciences of men, subjecting them to carry such a burden while not the smallest mercy was ever offered. And whatever relief that might have been found seems always to have been to the material gain of the religious leaders of that day. Mercy for sale. We saw that later, later on in the history of the church. Indulgences sold, uh, accommodations made, contributions springing souls from uh, per perdition, uh, all, all sorts of accommodations made. And, and so the slightest bit of mercy extended towards a faithful follower always seemed to tend towards the profiting of the religious authorities of the day. And, and so the Reformation came about to call into question exactly what Jesus is doing here. The character of the institution, not the institution itself. The character of the men occupying the office. Uh, to me, that's particularly egregious in the fact that they, they recognize their authority. And so in their scholarly way, and they develop all these regulations, there is the assumption that they have the best intentions and the guarding of the glory of God and the safety of God's people in mind. And so they lay out all these regulations. And so they accept these regulations upon themselves uh, as coming from the authority that they associate with these men occupying the chair of Moses. That makes it all the more egregious to me because now they're yielding to it not because they see the the reasoning of it, but they, they are yielding now merely to the authority or their perception of the authority of those rendering those regulations and all the rules outside of the law of God. And so, and so these men exploit that. They, they recognize that, the, hey, they recognize an authority in us, so that gives us room to enforce these regulations. And we'll, we may not say it overtly, but we'll let it carry the same weight as the Scriptures in their minds. And that is a tremendous burden to put upon the backs of people. 
accursed be the preacher of our day who lays upon the people a burden more than what the Lord has called them to carry. There is liberty in Christ Jesus. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. Is a, it, is a, it is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. That doesn't mean we don't preach the pursuit of holy living. We ought to be doing that. But I don't throw that upon the shoulders of the hearers as though that itself is, is, is the decisive element in your salvation. It is by grace. And through that grace, there is a, 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 a capacity and an ability to pursue holy living sanctification that produces in us sanctification and Christ-likeness it's a dangerous thing for those who are recognized as authoritative to exploit that authority to burden the the liberated people of Christ in our generation and in their generation the people of God himself notice always as well in verse 5 but it says they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. I just had in my, in my outline here, they always act in order to garner the admiration of men. Think about that for a minute. He says they do all their deeds. He, he doesn't say occasionally they get caught up in, in the admiration of men. He's saying this indictment of these people abiding in this office is that they do everything they do. For the admiration and the praise of men. Everything. They dress. They speak. They, they navigate. They, in, they relate. They, they go out into the community. Everything they do. He's going to give us an example in a moment. But everything they do is driven by a desire for the affirmation or the acclamation of men. Of fleshly gratification. Admiration by our fellow men. That's the fear of man, by the way. That is the fear of man. Wanting the admiration of man is as much the fear of man as being fearful of, of, of man and cowering in regards to the items and the truths of our faith. So that's a fear of man as well. But these men, they were always acting with that motivation. Ambition, pride, self-exaltation drives every single activity. And these guys did almost exclusively religious activities. <laughs> everything. I mean, everything they did was religious in its connotations. It should have spoke religion to everybody that watched what they did. But it says here of these men that their motivation in doing all of their deeds was that they might receive the admiration or the notice of men. Whether that was giving of alms or providing for the widows or whatever that fulfillment of the law might be. And they did it in a public way for the very purpose that it would be noticed by men. And Jesus says in another place, if that was your motive, you have your reward. When they say, man, that was awesome. Congratulations. There's your reward. Nothing left for you. That's it. Nothing more. So they always act in order to garner the admiration of men. In verse 5 as well, part of this acting is that they exaggerate their devotion. That is a striking passage to me. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. That is really fascinating. The word phylactery, the Greek word translated there here, means, uh, means protection, safeguard. 
Uh, one even, one it's sometimes even used to be like an, an ambulance, almost a, a, a lucky charm. In the phylacteries, they would tie it on their left wrist and in their forehead, and, and he said they would broaden those. My understanding is the one that they wear on their forehead from Deuteronomy 6 uh, had four compartments and four separate texts of Scripture in each compartment, and they would widen them, get them real big. My, my, my phylactery is full of Scripture. And it was, it was very, for a very real purpose. Even the tassels on their garment in Numbers, it mentions there that they are to sew tassels onto their garments and put a, put a, 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 a cloth of blue in that tassel. And it was to be a reminder to the wearer that he was obligated to follow the law of God. It was a reminder to him that he ought to be obedient to God. So what did they do? They broadened them. They made them longer. I mean, can you imagine what an ostentatious presentation it was? They paraded through the marketplaces and everybody had their phylacteries on in the certain ceremonies and theirs were small and they had a little small one here and they had a garment on that had a little tassel maybe and a piece of blue hanging off it. And here they come and they've got this long robe and garment and the tassels are long and, and sometimes I read they were attached even bells to them where they would tinkle as they were walking along and their phylactery covered their whole forehead and it was massive on their wrist. The message to the people was, I am religious. But the reality, those things were intended to remind the wearer of his obligation to follow and to yield to God in his life, to humble himself under the mighty hand of God, to let Scripture guide his thinking and his hands, and to, and to be reminded that he was a son of God under the law, that he had an obligation to walk humbly with his God. And they used the very thing that was to remind them of humility to exalt themselves. Can you think of anything more contradictory than that? That's what they were doing. They were broadening these things, the phylacteries, and lengthening their tassels. And apparently it works because in verse, in verse 6, they love the place of uh, honor at banquets and the chief seats in the, in the synagogues. In verse 7, it talks about they love the respectful meetings and the uh, greetings in the marketplace so the people would see it and they would obviously respond here he comes everybody humble themselves and bow and greet them humbly and respectfully for they are indeed the religious elite of our people in some ways they were the most prideful he says later on the pride shall be brought down and the humble shall be lifted up so they always exaggerate their devotions. Verse 6, they love the exalted places. He mentions too there the honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue. Uh, I remember uh, I've been to services before. You ever been to revival services? And, and uh, I've actually seen this happen. It happened at Fruitland. We had like chapel revival and they had guest preachers, pretty renowned in this region. I mean, I don't know that many of us would know them, but uh, I had heard of a few of them. And, and some of them were just visiting. And, and, the, and from the pulpit, they would say, oh, Hey, brother, it's good to see you here. Why don't you come down front here? And the man would get up and walk down front. I thought to myself when I witnessed that, I would have crawled under that chair if he'd have done that to me. 
I mean, this guy wasn't going to be preaching. He wasn't going to be praying in public. He wasn't going to be participating in the worship whatsoever. He was a man. He's a respected man in the community. Come on down here at the front seats. To be honest with you, that man, had he had the courage, should have rebuked the man in the pulpit that done that at that moment. And he should have cited this text right here. I'll stay seated where I am, thank you. Should have been the response. These men, they love that. They, they, they're the guy that got called up front and they said, man, I'm glad he noticed me. And he, and he parades down very slowly. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. With that politician handshake and all those things. And he takes his seat. Or he goes to a banquet. And there's a place up near the host of the banquet, the master of the banquet, the master of the house. And, and you get recognized and they say, no, 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 not over there. You come on up here. And oh, he loves it. That's the key here. They love that. That is the issue. It's not so much that where they were sitting. It's not where they were sitting at the banquet or even in the chief seats in the synagogue. The issue is they love those things. That says something about the character of the man. It's one thing to be invited to take a seat somewhere in a prominent place because you're being honored. But to love the be invited there means all the difference in the world. In fact, if you love it, you ought to be especially on guard against accepting the invitation. Because by, by accepting it, you're feeding a lustfulness in our own hearts. That's the men who were occupying this office, so esteemed as it should have been. These were men who loved this. They loved, verse 7, the respectful greetings and titles. Rabbi, Rabbi. That's not, that's not just an idle term. In our vernacular, that would be uh, doctor or even master, uh, professor. That's the kind of words. Uh, I'm thankful I knew a man who had a doctorate, an earned doctorate, and, and he, uh, he was made uncomfortable when people addressed him as doctor so-and-so. And he preferred, would you just call me brother so-and-so. And I always respected that man. I don't know what his theology was, but he got that one right. But then you have other ones who have an honorary doctorate, and they insist, uh, that's doctor to you. These men were like that. They loved the titles. And they loved the respectful way they were greeted in the marketplace. There were hush whispers. Here he comes. Here he comes. I remember we had a prominent preacher. You would recognize this name. Come and preach at Fruitland one time in our chapel during the week. And I remember after, the, after he finished and he came down and the service was dismissed, the whole student body just swamped the man. And, and there was this clamoring for an autograph. Some even want him to sign their Bible and things like that. And to his credit, it looked to me like it was making him uncomfortable. But nevertheless, he was entertaining the crowd. And I saw him signing Bibles and all sorts of things. And I thought to myself, Lord, mark that in my head. Number one, I'm never signing nobody's Bible, even if that became a, an opportunity for me. Number two, I'm not giving anybody my autograph, even if they wanted it. I don't think that'll ever be a problem. But even if they did, I wouldn't give it to them. Number one, because it's worthless. Number two, because if I died and somehow or another it did become valuable and you sold it, you're just profiting off my name. And so I wouldn't give it to nobody. I wouldn't give out any autographs at all. But he says these people, they love that. 
They parade. They would like nothing more from you to come up to me and say, Oh, Rabbi so-and-so, oh, could you, could you sign my, my phylactery here? Could you make your mark on that? Because I want everybody to know I had a one-on-one conversation with you. That's rare. And they love it. They love it. Do you see the, the challenge that Jesus has here? He's preserving the institution and the authority of the Moses seat where the law was proclaimed in which was a revelation of Him and His own glory. He's preserving that at the same time rebuking the men who occupied that office. And I couldn't help but think, would Jesus do the same to the church today? Would he, would he preserve the institution of the church, the body of Christ? Would he draw attention and tell the people, do not neglect, do not despise, do not disregard the church. It is God's institution. It is Christ's own body. But then turn immediately and rebuke so many who are leading in the church from pulpits and from podiums and from other and from platforms in general. My fear is that He would have just grounds to do that and convictingly in some areas even in my own life. And if you're a leader of anyone, you ought to be wondering the same thing. Notice what Jesus says to them in closing. He says to them, but do not be called rabbi, speaking to his disciples. Don't be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. So the disciples need not be called master rabbi, doctor, professor. They didn't didn't have any titles. They were brothers. They were brothers. Do not call anyone your father. I think of the Catholic Church, Holy Father, the Pope, and so forth. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. Wow. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Now, I I don't think... That means we can't speak of church elders and deacons as the church leadership. But to, but to desire the title leader. I want to be called the leader. I want to lead. Don't, don't any of you be doing that. You have a leader already. You follow him. And that leader is Christ. And then he concludes with these thoughts to his disciples and through them to us as well. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Um, Later, the New Testament tells us at the proper time. And so God does the exalting. We need to be doing the humbling. Uh, We need to be humbling ourselves, uh, not like the men who occupied this office here. It's a wonderful warning uh, for us as well. Uh, so, So thank you. Stand with me, and we'll close with those thoughts, with the Jesus words. Father, we are thankful again for your word. Lord, thankful for the instruction and for the rebuke as well. Lord, it's easy for us, especially if we grow accustomed to a certain place of leadership. Uh, it's real easy for us to just presume to ourselves a certain authority and, and to be mindless of it and therefore abusive of it. And so, Father, I pray for all who are in leadership here in Diamond Hill and in, in the church in this community in general, Father, that we might be reminded from your word that you are head. And Lord, that the church is your, is your body. 
This is an institution founded by you for your own glory. And so, Father, we pray that we might live lives of integrity and of character to where we ourselves would not undermine the great truths of your word. So, Lord, just help us as a church, help us as individuals as well, whether it's a father leading his family or, a, or a, an elder leading from the pulpit. We want to be found faithful and we want to be humbled and let Christ's name be exalted. Thank you for those who've come tonight, Father. Bless them throughout the, the remaining of this week, Father. We look forward to gathering again this Sunday as we worship you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.